Trumpcast is brought to you today by Helix Sleep, a new kind of mattress company. At Helix Sleep, they run a 3D biomechanical model of your body through a proprietary algorithm for a custom ergonomic mattress and the best night's sleep of your life. For $50 off of your mattress order, go to Helix Sleep. That's H-E-L-I-X sleep.com slash Trumpcast. You retweeted an unflattering picture of her next to a picture of your wife. I didn't start it. Oh, but that's, I didn't uh, start uh, it. Sir, with all due respect, that's the argument of a five-year-old. Anytime he gets upset, anytime he gets threatened, anytime he gets scared, he begins yelling, he begins often cursing. Hello and welcome to Trumpcast, the show about the peddler of quack vitamin cures, Donald Trump. I'm Jacob Weisberg. So after Andrew Sullivan got everyone depressed by talking about how Trump could win, I thought it might be a good time to take a rational look at Trump's realistic chances. Whatever the latest national polls say, the basic electoral math still looks pretty terrible for him. The share of votes Trump would need from different demographic groups and their historic turnout levels not to mention Trump's lack of any conventional get-out-the-vote machine, stack the odds pretty heavily against him. Jamel Bowie, who was our guest on the very first episode of Trumpcast, has been doing that analysis in Slate. I'll talk to him about the real risk of a Trump victory in a minute. But first, I finally got a chance to sit down with the man himself. It didn't go quite as I was planning. Wow, I'm here with Donald Trump. Mr. Trump, welcome to Trumpcast. It's absolutely fantastic to have me on your show. You know, you're like, you're the ultimate guest for us. Oh, absolutely. It's it's named after me. But I have to ask you, what do you think about this podcast? Well, frankly, I love the name. Great name, strong name. And I think the subject matter is of the utmost importance. So are you a big podcast listener? I love, love, love podcasts. What are some of your favorites? Well, I love This American Life. I love The Gist. And I love Serial. Wow, you have great taste. Those are terrific podcasts. What? No, I'm not talking about podcasts. I'm just talking about my favorite things. I love this American life that we're all living, and that's why I want to protect it from immigrants and Muslims. I love the gist. That's about as much of an issue as I ever try to understand. Just the gist. That's it. That's all I need. And cereal, it's great in the morning. It's milk and cereal. It's so simple. It's fantastic. It's a great way to start the day. So do you actually listen to any podcasts? I can't do earbuds. I'm a raging germaphobe. I, I, I don't want to put anything in my ears. So I have to listen on big headphones. Beats by Dr. Dre. Have you heard these things? Yes, I've heard of Beats by Dr. Dre. Listen, listen, this is amazing. They cost $14 to make. He charges $300 just to have his name on them. I mean, I have to tell you something. That's brilliant. That's what America is all about. Mr. Trump, do you even know what this podcast is about? Mm, sure. Trumpcast. What could be better? We're going to take what I've done for stakes and universities, and we're going to do it for podcasts. It's going to be terrific. I just have to tell you. Uh, Mr. Trump, this isn't your podcast. You don't own this podcast. I don't? No, this is, podcast is about what a danger you are to the country. It's about the national emergency of you. 
Oh, let me tell you something. All right. That's not very nice, Jacob. All right. I'm a nice guy, but you're going to make me not be a nice guy. Listen, get, get him out of here. Get him out of here. Mr. Trump, you can't kick me out. This is my podcast. Nope. It's got my name on it. If my name is on it, I own it. Just like the Taj Mahal or the city of Chicago. By the way, it's a fantastic city. You don't own the city of Chicago. You just own one building there. Sure, I do. Have you seen any other names on the skyline? That city is mine. And so is this podcast. This interview is over. It's over. Come on. Get him out of the chair. Get him out of the Wait, chair. Wait, stop. Come you on. can't Hurry. do that. Get this him is out my of here. show. I'm going to take office. over. Stop. I'm going to take hey. over. Fine. Get him out. Is he... In the good old days, law enforcement acted a lot quicker than this. Thanks to Steve Waltine at Second City for putting that interview together. John D. Domenico, as always, is our voice of the Donald. In the good old days, they'd ripped him out of that seat so fast. But today, everybody's politically correct. Our country's going to hell with being politically correct. Going to hell. Trumpcast is brought to you today by Helix Sleep. So what is it about buying a mattress that leaves you feeling violated? Is it those pushy salespeople or the fake President's Day sales or the fact that you know you'll regret what you bought as soon as you do that walk of shame out of the mattress store? Those days are over thanks to Helix Sleep, where you can buy a mattress online customized for you for hundreds of dollars instead of thousands. Go to helixsleep.com, that's H-E-L-I-X sleep.com, answer a few simple questions, and Helix creates your custom sleep profile to build you the most comfortable mattress you'll ever sleep on. Your mattress will arrive at your door in about a week, and shipping is 100% free. You have 100 nights to try it out, and if you don't love it, they'll pick it up for free and give you a 100% refund, no questions asked. It's like it never happened. If you do love your new Helix mattress, keep it and your dignity. That's why everyone from GQ Magazine to Forbes are all talking about Helix Sleep. Go to helixsleep.com slash trumpcast and get $50 off your order. That's H-E-L-I-X sleep.com slash trumpcast. My guest today is Jamel Bowie, the chief political correspondent of Slate. Jamel was the guest on the very first episode of Trumpcast. It's been a couple months since then. We've talked to a lot of other people. But Jamel, really happy to have you back. I'm glad to be back. So we had Andrew Sullivan on the show last week, and he left everybody depressed. I have so <laughs> idea. <laughs> it was a very good discussion about, you know, sort of the end of democracy. But he's very concerned about Trump right, and thinks right. there's a very realistic chance of, of Trump winning. And increasingly, there have been polls that support the view that that's a realistic possibility. You have been writing in Slate that this is still a real long shot. Yeah. And so we're, we're coming to you for some, some reassurance here. Remind us of why a Trump victory is highly unlikely. So I think the polls that have come out, and I think it's been three polls thus far, Fox News, Rasmussen, and uh, Washington Post, ABC News, which show Trump with a lead of around two to three points. And I think actually when you dig into those polls, you see evidence for the view, strong evidence for the view that Trump's won as a long shot. In the Washington Post, ABC News poll, for example, which I think of the three is probably the best poll, most reliable poll, has a great record. Trump is tied with Clinton among 18 to 29-year-olds. Now, Barack Obama won them by about like 20-odd points. I mean, he won them overwhelmingly, and they were an important part of his 2012 victory. So there are basically two options here. Option one is that all of a sudden Donald Trump has just really improved Republican performance among young voters, which would run counter to 
other numbers in that same poll and other polls showing Trump with deep disfavorability among young people. So that just doesn't seem consistent. The other one is that this poll isn't giving us a prediction as much as it's giving us a snapshot of a moment in time. And at that moment in time, what is happening? The Democratic primary is still ongoing and the Democratic primary has this sharp generational gap between Clinton and Sanders. And so I think looking at this poll, what you're seeing is basically the Democrats still working their way through to unity. The young Sanders voters not ready to say they would support Hillary. If you were to give Clinton, not Obama-style numbers, but if you just sort of bump her up plus 15, which seems reasonable, it's about what John Kerry got in 2004, all of a sudden there'd be a five-point Clinton spread on Trump. I think what that's telling us and what a lot of these polls are telling us is that if you have an all-things-equal election – Two campaigns that are running at full speed, Uh, an economy that's not great, but not bad either, a president who's like well-liked, but not super popular. Democrats have an advantage. They have a modest advantage over Trump, and that doesn't mean that an economic shock couldn't change things or that a terrorist attack couldn't change things. But absent those shocks, it looks like Democrats have the lead. I mean, if you look at models... If you believe in political science, right. it says there's certain this elections tend to look like previous elections in some respects, and you can model turnout, different electorates, different demographic groups. You can model the strength of the economy, what the, whether the incumbents in the same party. And you look at all that stuff; it's really, really hard to win. That's reassuring. Right. right. But so far, this election hasn't looked much like the models. And isn't there a case that, look, we're just sort of off the charts because Trump is a different kind of candidate appealing to voters in a different way. And who's to say that white sentiment or white turnout is going to look anything like it did in the last few elections? I mean, I I think there's definitely a case to make that Trump could essentially pull off the impressive feat of causing an upswing in white turnout. I mean, I think the thing that has benefited Democrats over the past few cycles is that the turnout among white voters has been dropping steadily about two points every four years, which just lowers the threshold Democrats need uh, in terms of getting white votes from, you know, for John Kerry, probably 45 percent to Barack Obama, 40 percent or really 39 percent was what he got in 2012. And so if Trump could somehow get white turnout up to even 2008 levels um, and then win a preponderance of of white voters, which would be something like 65 percent. Uh, then he would he totally he totally win. I mean that that would be the ball game. The reason I, I'm skeptical, um, and I sort of so I agree actually that this election is unusual and it's not normal. But I do not agree that it's necessarily because of Trump. I think if you're inclined to have an institutional view of politics, then it's worth continuing with that institutional institutional view and looking what the institutions are doing in this election and. From my perspective, it's not so much that Trump has scrambled the rules, but that the Republican Party was dysfunctional in a way that no one really anticipated, that you can easily imagine a Republican Party that looked even more like the one in 2012 or 2008 that did not allow 16 candidates to run, did not allow sort of this scramble of divisiveness within the party to distract from trying to get rid of a threat that actually coordinated at some point to really stop um, what was a direct threat to the party establishment. And looking at this election, it's clear that at every possible inflection point for the Republican Party as an institution to do something about Trump, it demurred. 
until it was basically too late. I mean, all other candidates, though, sort of accept one of the premises of the model, which is that you have people who are inclined to vote for you, and you've got to turn them out. And the way you turn them out is you have little lists of voters with check marks, and you have people who go door to door and call them up and try to get them to vote. Right. Trump's not doing that and seem to be doing that. He's not building that kind of organization. He's trying to inflame people on social media, right. create a sense of kind of momentum, crisis, hysteria, whatever. He has a different model for turnout. How do we know how that's right. going to work? So you look at the, the Republican primary and you look at the number of people who voted for Trump, which at this point is like 11 million people, give or take. I don't have the exact number with me at this point, but it's basically like 11 million people. 11 million people is off the top of my head – is like 6% of people who voted in the 2012 election. It's like a little, it's like 4 or 5% of all registered voters. It's a very tiny number of people who vote. And I think the critical point is that these are people who typically vote. And there's evidence to suggest that insofar that Trump has generated new turnout in the Republican primary, it's among Republican presidential voters, people who vote in generals who hadn't voted in primaries before. So it's still basically the same pool of people who vote and people who are highly partisan and who are highly enthusiastic to participate in politics. It's easy, relatively easy, to turn those people out in a primary because primaries are basically designed to get those people to the polls. But – and this is something – I feel like here is, here is a point where this is like my hot take. For general elections, enthusiastic voters don't matter because enthusiastic voters will vote. They are enthusiastic. They are voters. Well, who matters are unenthusiastic voters or non-enthusiastic voters or people who just don't particularly care about voting. And there, as you say, campaign organizations are vital. They Campaign organizations are designed to get people who are nominally attached to your side and physically move them to polls. I think when push comes to shove, Trump will have to do that. I, I do not actually doubt that in the universe of possible voters, there are enough people to give Trump 50 plus 1 percent of the vote. But can Trump and the Republican Party move the, those marginal people to the polls? That's a different question. Yeah. And I see no evidence thus far. An anecdote. In Ohio right now, the Clinton campaign has about like two dozen staffers. Um, they're already opening offices. They're already beginning to make phone calls. Notably, uh, former Sanders supporters are also engaged in this effort as well. Team Trump has no one. They have not a single person, not, not a on, the single ground person on the ground at all in, in Ohio. And it's it's Hasn't May. he heard that as, as Ohio goes, so goes the country? <laughs> <laughs> and it's May right now. And it, it takes time to get that kind of stuff going. If it's August and Trump, Ohio is still threadbare, I think that tells you something really important about the Trump campaign ability to really translate any enthusiasm it might have or any support it might have into actual physical votes. But don't you think just at a gut hot take level that Ohio is a place Trump could win. I mean, this sort of Rust Belt state with all of these industrial workers who've been suffering from deindustrialization and all the trends he's talking about and are anti-trade and haven't had any candidate they've responded to right. really in the last several elections. Trump's sort of out there. Couldn't he just, I mean, at an intuitive level, he could win Ohio. He could win Pennsylvania. He could win Florida. I'm not saying he couldn't win them. Yeah. I'm saying that to win them, it's not like step one, have message, step three, win, right? right. There's like this whole step two thing <laughs> that's really important. That he's not so so hot on. He's not so hot on step two. And I think, I mean, it's worth 
to use Ohio and Pennsylvania as examples, Barack Obama won both states basically on the strength of his support among African-American voters, who are voters who disproportionately face a lot of the bad economic conditions that these white workers that Trump is appealing to have. Um, and they're disproportionately poor and they're disproportionately less likely to have access to sort of mainstream life. But somehow the Obama campaign was able to turn those people who demographically really are non-voters, people of economic disadvantage, um, tend not to vote. He turned them into voters. And I think that gives us a, a glimpse into how important campaign organizations are and how important it is to have sort of basically civic organizations that mediate politics for people. Black voters have that more than most just in the form of church. Black voters are highly religious compared to the typical American. So in Ohio, let's say there's a pool of people large enough to give Trump an unambiguous win in the state or even, you know, 50, 50.1 percent of the vote. And let's say that some number of those, 5% of that 50.1% are demographically non-voters. That In order to actually get them to the polls, you have to invest more energy than you would normally do. Democrats have an assist among their poor pool of non-voters that there are all these other institutions helping them out to do the same. That doesn't really exist for this group. The decline of unions, uh, the decline of church attendance among whites sort of have disconnected these people from civil society, civil society more broadly. So it really is up to the campaigns to do it. So the question is, do you think Team Trump will have the kind of campaign to bring those people to the polls? I don't think they will. You're, you're reassuring me because you're a man of science and you keep coming back <laughs> to, to the math and the science of politics, which is you have to turn out the vote. But again, my concern is that we're we're sort of not in a science election. We're in a magic election. So I just <laughs> I just I don't know. I, I think that Trump has people shook. I think Trump. By by virtue of winning the nomination, Trump has convinced people to buy into his self-conception of this figure of pure will to power. I just don't buy it. I look at Trump's win and see a series of unlikely flukes, which does not mean that, like, obviously something that is unlikely by definition can happen. But it was sort of like a perfect storm of institutional dysfunction and Trump's willingness to embrace sort of like the ugliest parts of American life and American politics and do so within an institutional context where there was no pushback. Like you can kind of imagine, you can imagine a demagogue in a democratic primary very easily. You can imagine someone trying to play on the ugliest fears and impulses of democratic voters. And let's say those are racial and let's say this person is playing on white racial fears in the democratic primary. There's built-in pushback within the democratic party because like 40% of the voters are not white. There was no built-in pushback within the Republican party to that kind of appeal. There's built-in pushback in the American electorate at large. And so I, I think really the question is, is like, A, can Trump like actually deliver votes? And B, if he can, will it be a reaction to the action? And there always is. So we've sort of done the, the swing state analysis. We've done the, the demographic analysis. Let's talk about the risk of kind of exogenous shocks, as economists would call it. And the ones I want to run by you are one, economic downturn between now and the election, two, terrorist attack between now and the election, and three, something with Hillary and the emails, because at some point, I don't think there's much chance of her being indicted. 
But at some point between now and the election, the Justice Department is going to come out with something. Right. And it may be a slap on the wrist. It may be a report that essentially says nothing. Or there could be some consequences. Right. There's been consequences for other people who violated security rules in ways comparable to what it looks like she did. Right. So an economic shock, a recession, I think would really it would make Trump's win much more likely. I mean, the the way political scientists talk about it is that um, there's no use doing state-by-state analysis or even really detailed demographic analysis. Basically, you can look at broad conditions and determine if there's going to be some kind of swing. And for Republicans to win a national election, there basically needs to be a three-point uniform swing from 2012 to now. So if Republicans win 3% more white voters, 3% more black voters, 3% or of the total share. So yeah. for black voters, it'd be like 25% more black voters. But if their total share went up 3% among every major demographic group, they would win. And I think in, in economic, like recessions are basically the thing that things that do that. And you saw that kind of in, in miniature with Obama from 08 to 12, like a sluggish economy created like a good three or four point swing from year to year. I'll say that we're, we are approaching the point where if there were a downturn and if it was just modest, it probably wouldn't be that devastating to Democrats. Like it's earlier in the year, basically when people have time to feel it, um, it hurts more. It's getting late in the game. Right. right. But yeah. like – so yeah. if one were to hit in October, I don't think it would make that much of a difference. Yeah. And basically as you go backwards in time from that moment, like it gets worse and worse and worse. So I'd say any recession after the fall begins, Democrats – Shouldn't be happy about it, but I don't think it's going to like transform the field. Something right now totally would. Terrorist attack. So here's the thing about terrorist attacks. I think looking at what happened last winter says a terrorist attack is going to help Trump. It's actually an open question. I like. I I did a lot of reading and talking to folks on this, and the two perspectives are: you know, first, a terrorist attack benefits. Basically, the reactionary candidate in an election. Who's willing to be tougher on terrorists, yeah. And that's Trump. It could benefit the hawkish candidate in an election, which might be Clinton. It sometimes benefits people who can create the perception of more expertise around national security. You might want someone who knows what the hell they're doing. Right. Could be Clinton. So I don't actually know how it would shake out. So I, and when I've written about this, right. I basically just said, kind of bracket that because it, it genuinely is a wild card. Right. Um, so if Hillary gets indicted, I think uh, – That's not good? That's not good. <laughs> that's that's really bad. But sub-indicted. I don't think she's going to yeah. get indicted. But I think they could come up with a scathing report that says, you know, there should be – in other cases like this, people have their security clearances suspended, taken away. You know, there could be some consequence. Right. I think anything sub-indicted, partisanship basically limits the extent of the damage. And I, I this is – this will be an election where we can kind of see how much partisanship really matters. If it matters as much as everyone thinks it does, then there really isn't that much volatility to have in the electorate. Like both candidates have a solid floor and they have ce- they have ceilings. Like even I think best case scenario for Clinton, she wins 53 percent of the vote. And I really do not think it goes higher than that just because of partisanship. Yeah. All right. Last question. It's a couple days before Memorial Weekend. What odds do I have to give you to take Trump? To take Trump? Yeah. I'd have to either be betting a very tiny amount of money. <laughs> um, what, do, what do you think the odds are right now? What should, what should, the, what should the morning line be in, in Vegas or on, on uh, you know, the English betting side? Right. I, don't, I don't know how to talk in terms of bets, so I'll talk in t- terms of coin tosses. If you toss a coin 100 times, I would say that 20 of those times it came up Trump. 
Okay, 20 out of 100 coin tosses. That's uh, five to one. Yeah, that's about right. Uh, Jamel, thanks for joining me on the show. No, my pleasure. Hopefully I could make everyone feel just a little bit better about this election. Maybe a little bit. We may need you to cheer us up again. (laughs) That's it for today's episode. Trumpcast is powered by Trump Vitamins. Henry Belofsky took the Trump Network urine test, $140, and got a personalized recommendation for supplements recommended by leading American athletes. Jason DeLeon subscribed to the Naturopathic Vitamin Cure for $70 a month. Steve Lichtai remembers to get retested every nine months. It's only $100. Andy Bauer skips the vitamins but ordered the whole Snazzle Snacks kit for $248. So we've always got Snazzle bars in the office. I'm Jacob Weisberg. Thanks for listening to Trumpcast. Do you actually listen to any podcasts? I can't do earbuds. (laughs) (laughs) That's something you would say. I can't do earbuds. I'm a raging germaphobe. I won't put anything in my ear.